going on? Happy Monday. Welcome to the show. Pete Callender here. Thanks a lot for hanging out with me. I appreciate it. Letting me hang out with you. The phone numbers, as always, 704-570-1110 and 1-800-WBT-1110. Uh, the email is Pete at the Pete com, And, of course, as always, on Twitter at Pete Callender. And remember, get the podcast. It's totally free and uh, comes right to your smartphone or tablet. Uh, and uh, it just... It just shows up there as soon as we post it during the show here. After each hour, we post it up, and then you get it. And uh, so then you can listen as many times as you would like to hear all of the mistakes I make. Um, so we have uh, we have some uh, sad news in the world of WBT. Uh, Jerry V. passed away. Uh, he was 72 years old, and uh, according to his family, he had been diagnosed with uh uh, heart condition years ago, and um, I, when I first started working here at WBT, roughly about that same time, I had no idea that there was ever anything wrong with him. No idea about this condition, but that's sort of the kind of guy he was. He was a very much a larger than life person. Um, I worked with him for one season when I was uh, so I, I I arrived at WBT as a part-timer in the news department and uh, they were hoping to try to get me a full-time gig in the news department. They were trying to expand uh, the, uh, the the roster back there. This was under the old program director, Randall Bloomquist. And so they didn't want me leaving. And so he lined up an interview for me to go uh, talk to the Charlotte Hornets and they hired me. I have no idea why, but they hired me to do pregame, postgame, and halftime score updates, news from around the league, that sort of thing. And uh, Bob Licht, Steve Martin, uh, they were the uh, the media guys, you know, uh, Steve Martin on the TV side and Bob Licht on the radio side. And Jerry V was one of the guys who would do the, uh, who would do color along with Mike Jaminski, um, I think Gill. Um, it's not Hodges. I always forget his last name, but what was it? Yes. McGregor. Thank you. Gil McGregor. And, um, and so that's where I met Jerry V and not being a sports talk guy. I came from a news background. I, I, you know, didn't know who he was. I didn't know the whole thing, but he, um, he was always very, very kind to me and very funny. And, um, he was just a, a happy guy, uh, exuberant, and there was a bit of him that reminded me of my dad because he was from the city. I think he was from the Bronx, and he sounded just like my dad, who was from the Bronx, <laughs> that accent. Um, he worked in Charlotte for years, and uh, so I was there the season that Bobby Phils died in the car accident, racing against David Wesley outside of the the old, well, no, the the new old Charlotte Coliseum, and uh, over on Tyvola Road, which has now been completely redeveloped. It's like Jock and Jill's is still there, but everything else around it. It's now apartments and all the stuff I went through there the other day. It was just amazing. Um, but he was a mainstay on the Hornets' radio and TV broadcasts. He did that for over a decade, and then, of course, we lost the Hornets uh, after the arena uh, vote that went down. 
Uh, and by that point, I had gotten a full-time job in the news department, so I didn't work any longer for the for the Charlotte Hornets. Um, and yes, I did. Uh, I did adopt a a radio name, a fake name, which was always a weird thing to me. That Randall Bloomquist, the programming director, he did not want me to have the same name when I was doing stuff in the news department and doing stuff for the sports broadcast, which was weird because there wasn't anyone outside. Like the only people that are going to hear my voice on a news story and the Hornets broadcast would be everybody listens to BT, right? That's it. Because on the network, you know, going out to all of these other stations around the state, nobody knows who I am. They didn't know Pete Callender. I think back on it now, and I I suspect Randall did not want me to get any phone calls. (laughs) He didn't want... He didn't want because he was trying. He was, like I said, he tried to he tried to uh, give me a, a gig so this way I wouldn't leave or somebody would I guess hire me. I guess he was afraid I would get uh, I would get bored as a part timer and I'd go find full time work someplace else. And so he didn't want to help me boost my resume tape or something. I don't know. So he made me adopt a fake name, and so I chose. <laughs> so I, I chose Peter O'Donnell, as if nobody could tell it was me. Anyway, that's radio, people. That's radio. The, and, and Jerry and I would laugh about that as well because it was just one of those things that you do. Um, and I also knew our, growing up, my next-door neighbor's last name was Valancourt. And so, I don't know. So I just, I, and everybody does, I think. Most people have an instant uh, rapport with him because he was just that kind of guy. He then uh, went to New Orleans and uh, with the Hornets when they moved the team after we, uh, you know, the vote, uh, Voters voted down the arena referendum. It was a bundle with all of these different arts and and sports projects, which all got built after we voted it down. They built them all anyway, and uh, they moved the team. George Shin, Ray Wooldridge moved the team down to New Orleans. Um, They, at some point, didn't they? I think they're now the Pelicans, I think, right? They renamed, is that, yeah, that's whatever. They should have taken the name Jazz back. That's where that should, that's how that should have happened. You could have called them the Utah Pelicans or something. I don't care. Anyway, so he went down to New Orleans when the Hornets did, and uh, he did come back in 2017. And uh, there's a really nice write-up, I thought, uh, by Scott Fowler over at the Charlotte Observer. And uh, he is survived by his two daughters, four grandkids, three sisters, and uh, as Fowler says, and it's true, Valancourt was fond of telling people uh, on the air and in person to chase your crazy. No, it's not dating advice. It's uh, he did offer some of that too. The Wolf. I saw some of his videos on Facebook, but um, no, no, he, th- this was you know things that things that drive you, things that you're crazy about, things that you love, stuff you want to do, right? Chase that dream. Don't ever regret not going after it. Because even if you don't succeed, you've gone after it. And if you if you fail, at least you know you tried, right? At least you know, like, okay, I didn't like that. It wasn't what I thought it was. I wasn't cut out for it. Whatever. You don't ever know. But maybe, maybe you catch it. You know, maybe you catch the dream. So it's good advice. And... um he would also uh, be down in New Orleans when Hurricane Katrina hit. And uh, an old colleague of ours, uh, Adam Thomas, 
posted a link to an article that was written September 10th, 2005, right in the, the, the wake of the storm. And it was talking about radio. And the headline, this is from the LA Times, the headline was a lifeline sent by airwave. And it talks about the importance of radio. And this is one of the things that uh, I know, you know, people have, a, a, I think, a misunderstanding, especially nowadays with podcasts. And look, I know I, I, I you know, do the podcasting, but radio is a, is a different thing. And it is about the crisis moments. It's about the catastrophe. It's about connecting with people uh, during the worst times in a community or in people's lives. And that's what these stations did in New Orleans. And Jerry V was a part of that. News Talk 1110-993-WBT. Hat tip to Adam Thomas, formerly of WBT Radio. I think he's uh, last. I think he's still out in Utah. Right, where the Jazz should not have... Right, the team. Okay. Anyway, um, Adam uh, posted after he heard the news about Jerry V passing um, yesterday. He posted a story link. It was from the LA Times... Uh, September 10th, 2005. It says, After Hurricane Katrina, as modern forms of communications failed one by one in New Orleans, one technology functioned, and that was radio. Working out of a fluorescent-lighted studio in Baton Rouge, a collection of personalities from New Orleans radio stations, sportscasters, rock jocks, Christian broadcasters, soft rock, smooth talk, R&B, talent, all of these different people, They served as the slender connection between stranded people and the outside world. And this is the thing about radio. Kevin Duplantis was the chief engineer for WWL at the time. And he says, in a crisis, you fall back to what you know. You fall back to the very basics. In normal times, WWL is a conservative talk radio station. He says, and radio is very simple. Turn it on, turn up the volume, somebody's talking to you. You're attached to that voice. You're looking to that voice as your guide out. On August 29th, when the storm made landfall, satellite dishes welded to the rooftops in New Orleans broke loose and crashed into one another, cracking into pieces. The only media outlet still broadcasting live from the city was WWL, and in its offices, Programming and operations manager Diane Newman heard the studio windows, which had been boarded up, start exploding one by one. By 6 a.m. the next morning, a levee had broken, and Newman had orders to evacuate to Baton Rouge, 80 miles away. Those employees who could still drive out left at dawn, and the last few who remained were evacuated by helicopter. The helicopter had been chartered by WWL's fiercest competitor, Clear Channel, now iHeart, Clear Channel Communications. They had chartered the chopper to pick up their own employees. It was the beginning of an unusual partnership. That same day, Clear Channel and WWL's parent company, which was Entercom, former owner here at WBT, they temporarily combined their operations. 
18 stations would broadcast as one. Clear Channel would benefit from WWL's formidable news operation. Entercom would have access to Clear Channel Studios. The new venture they called United Radio Broadcasters of New Orleans, which is Urbno? Urbno? It's not a great acronym, but whatever. It went on the air at dawn, August 31, two days after the hurricane. It seemed like an easy decision. Dick Lewis, the Clear Channel Regional Vice President, uh, says he, can, he remembers the precise moment when he decided to get into radio. He was 17, in the car with his parents, driving through a terrible storm near Broken Bow, Oklahoma. It was the middle of the night. As the wind and hail grew stronger, Lewis recalls his mother told the kids to get down between the car seats. And then the tornado touched down on them, and the car started bouncing like a basketball. He remembers, uh, what he remembers is that the radio in the car was tuned to WKYA AM in Oklahoma City, and that stayed on the air. It kept working for 20 minutes, a period that felt like a lifetime. He says it was the radio that gave us our sense of calmness, our touch with the outside world. He got into radio for that reason, although most of his time is spent on routine stuff, Quote, we provide entertainment to fill up the time. All we're doing is filling up the time to be here until something of significant magnitude happens. So in the wake of Katrina, one of the guys that helped shepherd uh, the, um, the listeners through that storm was Jerry V. He had gone down to New Orleans when the Hornets moved down there. The story says, red-eyed at the end of a five-hour shift, Jerry Valancourt, a Charlotte Hornets analyst, recalled the stream of calls. I can't find my baby. My sister lost her baby. I saw a dead man. I've never seen a dead person. I can't find my four-year-old son. I can't find my husband. From behind the microphone in the studio, he said New Orleans sounded like a city being nuked. Valancourt is a warm, pugnacious man originally from the Bronx. He was struck, he said, by the power of talk radio, its intimacy, its burden. There's a family with 15 people in a house with no power, but they can listen. And you're on the next shift, and you're keeping them company, and it's frightening. Valancourt got through it with gentle, goofy humor. He remembers a woman who called. She was miserable. She was stranded. She said she was getting ready to eat, so Jerry V starts suggesting, hey, you should make some veal parmesan, (laughs) and maybe... Maybe I'll come on by with a bottle of Merlot. Really? Merlot? Anyway, she said she didn't have any of those ingredients. And then she says, well, what if I just make us a lasagna? And then she laughed and laughed. And that's what radio can do. And V understood that. He made the most of his pony ride. So rest in peace, Jerry Valancourt. News Talk 1110-993-WBT. I know, I know that I, I am a pretty harsh critic of a lot of reporting. So let me take this opportunity to highlight some good reporting at the Charlotte Observer. I thought the, um, this story by Anna Maria Della Costa, uh, Headline for Jason Myers' family, his funeral is a time to mourn and a time to celebrate. I found it to be uh, a very fine tribute to the, uh, to the man. 
It was well-written. It was a beautiful obituary, um, but it was a news story. And uh, look, obviously, it helps when you have so many people that say such beautiful things. It, it, it is easier to tell that story uh, through you know, the people that knew Jason Myers, who was the meteorologist at WBTV, who was killed in the helicopter crash last week, along with the pilot, Chip Tayak. Um, but I'll just, this is just part of the story, just starts like that. I highly recommend you read if you, uh, uh, I don't know if it's, beyond, uh, if it's behind a paywall or not uh, at the Charlotte Observer, but um, it's at charlotteobserver.com. And it starts off, Jason Myers was the tooth fairy. He was the tickle monster. He was the dessert of his family. He was also the light of the room. He was a servant of God. He was compassionate, loving, and the good news in the news, family members said. Amid reflection, tears, God's comfort, and song, hundreds grieved and remembered Myers on Saturday during his funeral at Carmel Baptist Church in Matthews. Um, Myers of Waxhaw, and a meteorologist with WBTV, died in a helicopter crash. He is survived uh, by his wife Jillian and their four children ages 13 through 19. Quote, whatever he was to the public, he was better than that at home, Jillian said. He was good-natured, sacrificially loving. No task was beneath him. He came from the school of gentlemen where he still opened the door for me. People talk about love languages. He was fluent in every single one of them. I love yous were never left unsaid. Humble apologies were never withheld. And it goes on from there. It's a very lengthy piece, and again, I uh, I thought it was a... A very good article, um, and our prayers and uh, condolences still to his his family, his colleagues, and his friends, along with Chip Tyegs. Uh, his uh, service, I believe, is uh, Wednesday in Lancaster. Um, we also had news over the um, yeah. We also had news over the Thanksgiving break. Apparently, an arrest warrant has been issued into the, uh, or for the, uh, yeah, in connection with the case of Shanquella Robinson, the woman from Charlotte who went to Cabo San Lucas and was dead within 24 hours of her arrival. And uh, I went over some of this last week. I'm glad to see uh, some of the. Uh, you know, social justice activists ha- have gotten involved, and I think they're uh, they're helping to push this story and get justice for uh, uh, this woman's fa- and her family. Um, and so now you've got Mexican authorities that have come out with a statement. Uh, so this is from Bevan Hurley. I believe this is from the Independent. Yeah, UK Independent, but it's republished at Yahoo. It's so hard to tell. Like so many of these articles now. Like you're on Yahoo and you're reading this piece and you realize halfway through, oh, this is from the Independent. So they all have these these sharing agreements, I guess. So uh, Shanquella Robinson uh, traveled to the resort town of San Jose del Cabo, Mexico, with uh, six university friends for a week-long stay in a luxury apartment on October 28th. Within 24 hours of their arrival, the 25-year-old was dead. Ms. Robinson's friends delivered her suitcases to her heartbroken parents, Bernard and Salamandra, in Charlotte, North Carolina, and claims uh, and claimed 
she had died of alcohol poisoning after a day of heavy drinking. Okay, so this, you'll recall when I talked about this story last week, I got a message from a listener who said that the friends had dropped the suitcases off at the parents' house. They also said, this emailer also said that the friends had robbed her. And that is also now in this story. The friend's story was discredited that she had died from alcohol poisoning when an autopsy released on November 10th revealed that Ms. Robinson had suffered a, quote, severe spinal cord injury and broken neck 15 minutes before her death. The death certificate was obtained by the independent. Then on November 15th, so five days later, we see the viral video that is out of Shanquella Robinson naked being beaten about the head and neck area by another woman in what appears to be a luxury resort hotel room of some kind. In the roughly 20 second long clip, a female aggressor approaches Shanquella and knocks her to the ground before delivering a flurry of brutal punches and kicks A prone Shanquella slumps defenseless to the floor in response. Although her attacker is fully clothed, she is inexplicably naked. A man, seemingly filming the attack, taunts Shanquella while doing nothing to intervene. Quote, at least fight back something, he can be heard saying. Shanquella's father, this is, I think I said this the other day. I don't understand people who shoot video like this. I I don't get that. I don't get how you see a fight and you just stand there and start, and your first thought is, let me record this and egg them on. I don't get that. But I have a, I don't know, maybe I'm just, I'm just different. I mean, I, wor- I worked as a bouncer at a bar, so maybe I, like, I, I, I see the fight and like, I try to separate them. And then I start punching away. On, no, I'm just kidding. But that's, it, it, this is one of these, these things that occur. I know it happened, you know, people on the playground, kids on the playground. They, oh, you're going to take that and egg on the fight and all that. Shanquella's father, Bernard Robinson, verified that it was his daughter in that video. In an interview with TMZ, he said he believes the attack was premeditated by the people that she thought were her friends. A police report provided to The Independent by a reporter, an investigative reporter for Metropolimix. I had a hard time saying this name last week, too. Metropolimix. Anyway, the reporter's name is Gerardo Zuniga, and it revealed emergency responders treated Shanquella in her apartment for nearly four hours before she died. Four hours. In that report, police claim that the uh, the alarm was first raised at about 2.23 p.m. on October 29th, one day after Robinson and her friend arrived at the resort. A doctor arrived an hour later to find Shanquella verbally unresponsive. Not long afterwards, she suffered a seizure. The police report states that friends refused the doctor's recommendations that Shanquella be transferred to a hospital, insisting she remain at the resort. It was only when death appeared imminent that an ambulance was called. Ms. Robinson went into cardiac arrest, after which a doctor reportedly administered 14 rounds of CPR, gave her five doses of adrenaline and six discharges of a defibrillator. These efforts were in vain, and she was eventually pronounced dead at 5.57 p.m. This four-hour-long saga seems 
in direct opposition to the death certificate, which describes Ms. Robinson dying just 15 minutes after suffering a broken neck. So there's a conflict between the original autopsy report and now this police report. It's unclear if the doctor who treated Shanquella was aware that she was actually suffering suffering from that catastrophic spinal injury or whether her friend's insistence that she had alcohol poisoning affected the treatment she was given. I would say most definitely, right? Doctor shows up, person is laying on the ground, incoherent, unresponsive, and the friends are like, oh, she's just been drinking so much, not telling the doctor that, oh, yeah, and also uh, we were beating the tar out of her, and so now she's laying there uh, with a spinal injury, which they probably didn't know it was that bad, but they may have connected the dots on that. Maybe she was also inebriated, or I don't know. Maybe the, the, uh, the appearance of inebriation was simply due to the injury, right? But if you don't tell the doctor what all is going on, and they start doing things as if the person does not have this terrible spinal injury, then that could kill them. So the the FBI Charlotte Field Office has now opened an investigation into her death. The doctor who treated her and the two cops in Mexico are also now under investigation by Mexican authorities, according to the local uh, reporter down there. And the Baja California State Attorney General's Office is investigating her death as a possible femicide, a form of gender-based violence. We'll get to their statement up next. News Talk 1110 and 99.3 WBT. Our condolences also to the family of Shanquella Robinson. Hopefully they're getting closer to justice for their daughter who uh, was killed on vacation down in Mexico. The uh, This is, I'm trying to get the name here. Uh, yeah, here it is. Daniel De La Rosa Anaya, a local prosecutor for the state of Baja, California, sir. And uh, here is the official statement. Quote, This case is fully clarified. We even have a court order. There is an arrest warrant issued for the crime of femicide to the detriment of the victim and against an alleged perpetrator, a friend of her who is the direct aggressor. Actually, it wasn't a quarrel, but instead a direct aggression. We are carrying out all the pertinent procedures such as the Interpol alert and the request for extradition to the United States of America. It is about two Americans, the victim and the culprit. I said this last week that I suspect that the initial hesitation uh, uh, by Mexican authorities to go too deep into this case was born out of a fear that there was going to be some sort of uh, connection to, uh, uh, you know, cartel activity uh, or you know some illegal activity occurring, whatever that 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 she was killed by Mexican criminals in Mexico, and that would be very bad for the tourism industry at this place where it occurred. So now that they've got more, as he says, the case is fully clarified. So seems to me like they have a really good understanding now of what occurred, and because they say. It's one of her friends that was in that room with her, maybe the one on video beating her up. 
that led to the spinal injuries that caused her death, then it's like, okay, well, this is an American on American crime. Now it's like we're, we're, we want to make sure everybody knows this is not, you know, us. This is not that we're still a safe place. This wasn't some, you know, outside criminal activity getting into the resort or whatever, because you'll recall it was just a, uh, was it like a few days or a couple weeks prior, there was a, an American tourist who was killed off of, I think it was off campus, off uh, outside of one of these resorts by a cartel. And I think they've made some arrests in that case, but they don't like this. So this death then came shortly on the heels of that. Um, so there's this new report and it differs significantly from the original autopsy report. ABC News reports uh, the original said that the medical professionals arrived at the villa at 3 p.m. And she was declared dead within 15 minutes. But the autopsy said Robinson died from a severe spinal cord injury and a dislocated neck. According to the new police report, Robinson's friends requested a medical consultation, right? Then the doctor shows up. She, uh, uh, Robinson has poor verbal response. Uh, they say she's in a state of drunkenness. The doctor says she looks dehydrated. We're going to try an IV. She had some stable vital signs. Um, she's like, we need to go to the hospital. The friends are like, no. Uh, they insist that she stay at the villa. Then uh, after about uh, two hours... She begins to have seizures. That's when one of the friends calls 911. Uh, the paramedics are dispatched. Her pulse starts to decrease. They start CPR. Um, and then she goes into cardiac arrest. Mexican authorities have now issued an arrest warrant for a suspect in the death of Shanquella Robinson. This is from Jalon Hill or Jalon Hill at QCityMetro.com. The warrant was issued for one of Robinson's friends who has been described as, quote, the direct aggressor in events that occurred on October 29th. The name of the suspect has not been released. Robinson made national news after she died October 29th in the Mexican resort city of Cabo San Lucas, where she had gone with six friends the previous day. There was another detail of this story. Let me see. This is back to The Independent, which has a very lengthy uh very lengthy write-up. Um, here it is. Shanquella was a graduate of Winston-Salem State University. She ran a beauty and hair braiding business called Exquisite Kids in Charlotte here. Uh, they checked into the $2,500 a night Villa Linda 32 at the Puerto Los Cabos Resort in Fundadores on October 28th with the traveling party. The party included four women and six men. In a video clip thought to have been shot the day of their arrival and shared by the Neighborhood Talk Instagram account, never heard of it, Shanquella appears in good spirits as she jokes that her friends are taking way too long to get ready. She says, quote, because they're getting ready to go down to the pool, I guess, or to the beach or something. And she says, quote, it don't take that long to get naked. Where are y'all at? She's walking around the villa asking which swimsuits the others are going to wear. So did that fight video, did that occur as they were getting changed into their swim gear or whatever? In an interview, Shanquella's mom said that her six friends came to see her after the, uh, they got back. They gave conflicting accounts of the lead up to her death. She said, nobody, t- nobody told the same story, so I never believed them anyway. 
and she has since claimed on Instagram that the friend stole $10,000 from her daughter. 